welcome back to the podcast, Working Smarter and Harder. Again, I am your host, Jonathan Rogers, and today we are going to be going over uh, something a little bit interesting. We're going to be going over a little bit of the history of fitness and exercise, um, and we're going to narrow down on two specific points, kind of more in recent history, and then uh, next week we're actually going to continue on this a little bit because this is a very broad topic. Um, I had hoped to get a guest on here this week, but that episode is still in process of being um, edited and taken care of and uh, fulfilled, so uh, that one will be coming up here very shortly. Uh, hopefully in the next couple of weeks I will be able to get that one to you guys. Um, so hang in there. We've got that one coming up here very soon. Um, uh, so for today, the episode that we're going to be going over, like I said, is going over a little bit of the history of fitness. But before we jump into that, I do want to go over our two quotes for today. Um, our first one is from the Stoic philosopher Seneca. He says, there are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than reality. And I think that's probably one of his most famous ones. Um, but today we're going to be focusing on the idea of fear. Uh, the other one is from Seneca as well. And it says, you are scared of dying and tell me, is the kind of life you lead really any different than being dead? So those are our two quotes for today. We're going to go back over to those and circle back around here towards the end of the episode. But... Today I want to hop into a little bit of the history of exercise and fitness and um, strength and lifting and kind of stuff like that and kind of start going over that. And I think that it's important that we do that because when we start to understand where something comes from, it helps create a better idea around exactly what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it um, because it does change so much with the um, with the with the time period and with the kind of environment that you're in, the socioeconomic status of a country or of, um, of a community, um, it has changed a lot over a period of time. But the thing that I like about exercise that's so easy to find is that it, it has such positive correlations throughout all of history. So there's not so much of a um, discrepancy or a discussion to be had or a debate, I should say, on the benefits of exercise. There are definitely a lot of things that have been more developed much more recently. Um, exercise physiology is a relatively new science, per se, as it's come up probably in the last 120, 130 years. Um, whereas, uh, as we start to look back on history a little bit more, um, we can find history of exercise being prescribed as a, um, as a treatment going as far back as... Um, uh, as far back as 25 to 250, uh, 25 BCE and 250 CE, um, uh, from Asian physicians who were Chinese physicians that were looking at it and saying that it was important for improving longevity. Um, they were saying, uh, it expels bad air in the system, promotes free circulation of blood and prevents sickness. They were talking about, it's very interesting. They were talking about, and they were saying, um, from this Chinese physician, Hua Tao, uh, advocated activities uh, that simulated the actions of deers, tigers, bears, cranes, and monkeys that not only supported his previous statements, but also strengthened legs, provided a sense of lightness, enhanced appetite, delayed aging, removed disease, and promoted health. So we have this commonality and this agreement with this ancient society that there is a huge and very positive impact that can be had is going as far back as, like I said, uh, common era of 100 CE. I mean, it's going all the way back to this time period where even back then they're starting to recognize the importance of this. 
Um, and I wanted to kind of go back and, like I said, discuss uh, the reason for exercise in, in these different kind of communities and different um, countries specifically and um, cultures. Because um, within Chinese and uh, Japanese and Asian culture, a lot of times we can see there was a um, there was a lot of exercise correlated with uh, mind and body, um, and there was a lot of spiritual influence on exercise, which is where we get exercise forms such as um, Tai Chi and yoga. Um, those still have a very huge positive impact today that we can see is very relevant um, because it works, and because it has a um, a uh, improved response upon our stress uh, response and helps us with um, controlling it. Uh, so there, there's a lot of influence there. And again, a lot of their uh, physical exercise was often tied to um, uh, not only combat. Um, typically, war time was one of the ones that was more common against uh, throughout a lot of other uh, nations. But for them, it was more of a it was more of a spiritual uh, purpose that helped to center the mind and the soul. Um, and they actually related a lot of it to yin and yang as well. Um, how one side represented health and exercise, the other side represented um, uh, disease and death. Uh, but uh, the other one that we see is, um, like I said, with uh, a lot of their uh, religious uh, focus studies, like with uh, Buddhism and other such uh, religions, there was a lot of um, physical activity included in those as well as it was actually one of their core principles and practices. If you were going to be a part of that community, then you had to make sure that you were physically active. Um, the other one that we see that is uh, typically much more common and definitely has a very large impact on today's society as well was Roman and Greek culture um, were one of the first couple of societies that kind of got to a point where they could perform any kind of um, exercise or sport for for sport um, and more of a leisure pastime recreational uh, activity which is typically more of what ours is considered today um, because there definitely was a period of time where if you weren't in good shape or if you weren't exercising on a regular basis or if you weren't moving uh, constantly then there was a actually like a life or death situation that would occur because uh, as we can understand um, somebody who is stronger in a survival situation will most likely live longer or maybe not stronger but perhaps fitter um, and so for a long time it was more of a it was more of a purely survival um, aspect that you had to be in good shape in order to survive um, but then like I said as we started to move into the Roman and Greek era then we can see a lot of influx of it being performed for leisure and for aesthetic purposes, um, this is when we have a lot of art starting to emerge that was kind of more hu uh, humanistic and had a lot more focus on the actual uh, physique. Um, and then we start to move into like the Italian culture, kind of closer to the Renaissance period where we see a lot of focus on the human anatomy, um, male and female, where it was very important to be in good shape because it was very uh, almost worshipped at the time, whether it was admitted or not. Um, so we see kind of an emergence of that there. Um, that definitely had a huge impact on today's culture as well and kind of in the development of bodybuilding and, um, and those aesthetics as well. Um, however, uh, when we start to look at this, we also look at cultures like the Spartan culture, which is one of the ones that we, even today, we still refer to um, as it was definitely, it was, it was the central part of their entire infrastructure for their um, for their society. Um, and there was a, uh, uh, 
there was a philosopher, or I should say, there was a there was a historian at the time, uh, Aristophanes, who claimed that a Spartan citizen was quote unquote addicted to exercise, uh, how, because it was so integrated into their society at a very young age, around the age of seven, Spartans were required to start uh, participating in combat and in sparring and were required to maintain a physical state and this was true for women and for men as well um, less a combat for women but definitely more along the lines of being in a healthy state to produce children i mean that was their kind of focal point was to have everybody in good shape because they um above the above the 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 kind of the hierarchy of um thinking when it comes to the society they were kind of doing it for glory and for honor and for all those other kinds of things that we start to break it down to its very fundamental state when we start to look at it we can identify that there was a very basic uh, understanding that strenuous exercise often produced stronger soldiers or fitter individuals who um, and I think the the correlation to childbirth is very interesting because even they understood that if you were in good shape, that childbirth was easier. Um, and so that is something that I would like to discuss a little bit more in the future. But just a little tidbit there to leave and just uh, to think about is that there is a very large correlation between uh, pregnancy and conception and fitness as well. Um, and there's a lot of research to back that. Uh, that one will be coming up here very soon, hoping to divulge into that a little bit more. Um, However, as we started to come through the eras and we started to come through the ages, um, exercise was definitely starting to be considered less of a necessity as um, inventions were made and uh, commodities were created. Um, I think one of the biggest ones that really actually had a big impact on the necessity of exercise was um, the Industrial Revolution, where we started to see a lot of things coming out that were designed primarily to help people live longer. Um, one of those is refrigeration. Um, refrigeration was something that definitely helped with just the food process in general. Um, it was no longer as necessary to um, uh, have a sustainable food source uh, that you could either maintain physically or you could hunt for it physically, something like that, or you had to grow it on your own because you could you could purchase it from someone else and you could put it inside of a refrigerated state and it would stay much longer, um, thus lowering the need for uh, additional uh, per, or additional uh, searching for resources or for food. Um, and same goes for um, grocery stores as they started to become popularized at this point was that there began to be um, this uh, very... Uh, constant or consistent I should say use of refrigeration so that foods could be held longer um, grocery stores started to become more popular people started to need to grow and to search for their own food less um, and this definitely uh, I think like going said going back to that survival state this definitely eliminated a part of that survival state or that survival need to be in good shape in order to feed your family or to feed yourself um, it definitely has lowered the barrier to entry for survival in that regard um, and that's had a big impact more than anything, I think, is just that whole hunting and gathering aspect when it comes to survival, um, because a lot of uh, hunting is and, and growing plants is both can be very, very strenuous activities for anybody who has done those things. You know that there is a large, there is a very, very physical aspect of it that if you are not physically prepared to do so, whether it is planting or growing crops or it is hunting and gathering, then you are going to have a much worse time or you're going to suffer so uh, somewhat. 
So I think that that has had a big impact on it as well. Um, but even more so as we started to get into a certain place where exercise was no longer required of individuals to be a recommendation almost. It was no longer a requirement for your own survival. It was simply considered to be something that you could participate in if you wanted to, but you definitely didn't have to. Um, and that's part of the reason why this podcast exists is because we are now in a day and age where we can't force anybody to exercise, but I would rather convince you that exercise is important. Um, and I want to encourage you that there are a lot of um, very excellent ways to do it because we have we live in a day and age where exercise doesn't have to be strenuous and it doesn't have to be tedious. Um, it can be fun. It can be exciting. Um, if you guys are looking for some maybe alternatives to your traditional forms of exercise, such as weightlifting and cardio, um, you can refer to my last couple of episodes on martial arts um, is one of the fantastic and very ancient ways to get into shape that we have known about for a very long time. The other one is going to be on the uh, on biking. Biking is also another excellent form of exercise that I would encourage that is very dynamic. Um, if you guys are more interested in that, you can go back to those last episodes and listen to those. I would highly encourage that. However, kind of changing our, switching our focus back to a little bit more recently, um, I wanted to bring a little bit more focus and attention on uh, two different aspects of um, exercise that have kind of developed over the last couple of uh, hundred of years. And more so than anything, just to give you guys a little bit of background and a little bit of understanding of the sport and kind of where they come from, uh, we're going to dive a little bit more into um, cardiovascular and bodybuilding next week. Uh, this week is going to be a little bit more focused on uh, the two uh, relatively comparable sports of powerlifting and Olympic lifting as they are very closely tied together. Um, or at least they were from the beginning. Um, they're definitely very separate sports now with very different athletes um, that have different purposes, uh, different focuses. However, um, they didn't actually start that way. Um, Olympic lifting was, uh, looking back as far back as I could find, um, the, the uh, first recorded events for Olympic lifting were back in 1896 uh, when we had one of our first Olympic Games. Uh, and those Olympic Games, they actually had um, a weightlifting competition that was included there. And it was interesting because looking at that, there was uh, kind of a very loose uh, rule system when it came to Olympic weightlifting. And there was not a great deal of... Um, <clears throat> Uh, was not a great deal of structure when it came to that. And so when we started to look at this, um, there were a one-handed option, and then there was also a two-handed option for a lot of the lifting that they were doing. Um, there was even some discussion that in these early Olympic Games that athletes were bringing their own barbells, um, which actually put some uh, uh, cheating into contention because there was a discussion about whether or not athletes could actually use their own barbells. Um, and this was, again, much longer before the uh, sport was much more established. Um, however, when we started to look at this from the very beginning, they were, like I said, performing single-handed and two-handed lifting uh, for Olympic lifts. Um, and then there was one year in 1900 during the Olympics where they just didn't even have a weightlifting competition at all because there wasn't room for it within the stadium. Um, when they, After they had performed all their track and field events, there just wasn't any room for a weightlifting uh, competition. So it was actually skipped altogether. Um, however, it returned in the next, after the next four years, it came back. Um, and then they actually brought it back. And this one actually had a much more structured and a much more established rule set uh, for exactly what was to be performed. And the traditional lifts that were being performed back then 
Um, it is actually different from that is now, just a little bit. There was a uh, clean and jerk, which is what we are familiar with, which is where it comes from the floor. The athlete can go into a full squat if they need to, bring it in the front rack position before they press it overhead uh, with that jerking motion. Um, and the other was the snatch as well. Um, but they also had a press, which was where they, the athlete would clean it, and then they were to press it overhead, strict press. Um, strict press was actually eliminated close to 1970 because it was actually considered to be too dangerous. Um, if you ever go back and you start looking at some of the uh, some of these pressing motions from like the 70s, uh, athletes were almost bending over backwards to get this weight overhead, um, and it was actually judged by the Olympic Committee that they were it was actually too dangerous of a movement and that it was actually a greater test of lumbar uh, durability, uh, which is the bones in your low back. Uh, as opposed to shoulder and upper body strength. So they actually removed the press altogether for safety concerns. Um, and now, as we see traditionally, we just have the clean and jerk and the snatch. Um, and uh, it has been much better uh, set up as we start to look at the um, weight classes are much more organized and the sport is definitely much more professional overall and it definitely has a place and it is not going anywhere soon um, and it definitely has a very big um, uh, uh, impact on a lot of other sports and activities uh, and it definitely has led the way for a lot of uh, positive benefits for a lot of different people and if you're looking for a little bit of variance and a little bit of uh, different strength training uh, as opposed to the typical everyday um, Olympic lifting is some of my favorite it is very technical um, as it does require a great deal of coordination and technological skill that takes a lot of time to perfect kind of like martial arts um, or like um, dance I suppose there is a lot of technical pieces and parts that have to go into it that require a lot of practice, but I do enjoy them a lot. They are very, very uh, dynamic and explosive and fast. Um, but interestingly enough, we're going to branch a little bit off of that. And when we look back at the very beginning of powerlifting, uh, I'm sorry, Olympic lifting, powerlifting was actually birthed from Olympic lifting because... Uh, we, when we look at the kind of the initial starting movements for a lot of Olympic movements, we typically tend to see there are the uh, the deadlift, uh, and there's the squat, although it's typically performed from uh, from a back squat, not from a front squat, and then we have the bench press, which is again it's a pressing motion, but it's under much safer um, guidelines. Um, but it was birthed from Olympic lifting, uh, and they started to uh, recognize it for these three different lifts uh, back in very very close to the same time. Um, <clears throat> it was uh, created. However, powerlifting didn't really start to gain a lot of ground until close to the 1960, 1976. So this board is actually even more recent than Olympic lifting. Um, when we had over in Western Virginia, we started, uh, in the United States anyways, we started to see a lot of this sport starting to pick up speed and gain momentum in regards to popularity. Um, so from 1960 to 1976, it was originally uh, coordinated and overseen by the Amateur Athletic Union, or the AAU, um, and they had a great deal of influence over this for a long time, uh, typically from 1960, I believe, until probably around 1984 to 83, somewhere in that range. They So close to almost 20 years, they were overseeing the sport and kind of helping it develop. 
um, when we first saw powerlifting come out in the 1960s and starting to gain popularity, it was considered quote-unquote raw. Um, and for those of you who don't understand what that is, raw is typically where the person would lift the weight without any kind of accommodation, uh, whereas now powerlifting is typically performed with uh, a belt, sometimes with uh, straps for the wrist, sometimes with... Uh, wraps for the knees um, and later on we'll see there was a development of a powerlifting shirt that actually caused some uh, compression around the uh, the joints in the shoulders and in the elbows to help out with um, overall joint stability and for uh, producing power through those joints as well um, but they consider it to be raw or like the more traditional form of powerlifting originally where athletes were not using any of this equipment and they were simply lifting without it um, and interestingly enough, and not terribly too surprising, when we started to go and started to look closer to 1977 and 1984, uh, we see a much greater um, uh, <laughs> we see a much greater influx of, of records being broken and of personal records being uh, defined as the introduction of belts and so on and so forth was established as athletes had a much easier time with core stability during uh, such exercises as the back squat and the deadlift. Um, and we saw much, uh, much more retained uh, uh, efficiency and longevity within joints as we started to introduce wraps and whatnot uh, that made things like squatting and bench pressing easier. Um, so unsurprisingly, as we started to introduce those, there, is, uh, there was a great uh, leaps and bounds when it came to records being broken and made. Uh, and then it was interesting also because powerlifting did not actually have its own space, really. Um, they were often performed in conjunction to um, physique uh, demonstrations. Uh, so bodybuilding kind of was the, the golden, uh, golden child, so to speak, of the time. And powerlifting was just kind of an adjunct to that because uh, it definitely was less worried about aesthetics or physique. And it was definitely much more concerned about power output and production. So it was interesting because we had, for a long time, uh, or as far back as 1960 through the 70s, we saw a great deal of powerlifts were kind of performed as kind of like a sideshow to a lot of bodybuilding competitions. Um, and then as we emerged into 1985 is when we see that powerlifting and bodybuilding started to become their own separate entities. Um, bodybuilding continued to be very popular, but powerlifting had kind of created its own space as a lot of people were starting to get involved and it was starting to become much more uh, much more prominent and much more of a defined and very real sport, um, which is where it has kind of developed into today. Uh, so as we start to look at powerlifting today, it has definitely picked up a lot of momentum and it has definitely started to have a great impact on a lot of people uh, and it is definitely uh, one of the most impressive sports from my opinion as even though some people may consider the fact that there's a low technical uh, part of it um, if you really start to get into the nitty-gritty of exercise you will be surprised to find that there is actually a great deal of um, uh, technical skill when it comes to squatting and when it comes to bench press and when it comes to deadlift there are lots of different ways that it can be done um, and they all revolve entirely around the rule system when it comes to official competitions or meets um, and so those are important to pay attention to um, if you haven't gone to a powerlifting meet or a powerlifting um, event I would recommend it there's a lot of uh, very positive energy and you will get to see a lot of very strong men and women that now compete in the sport um, and it is definitely um, it is definitely a very different experience but it is a very exciting one um, and it is one that is very impressive to watch um, a lot of people are familiar with um, 
the people who have set the world record for the deadlift, uh, that's definitely considered a power man lift or traditionally a power man lift. Um, I believe that we're just over a thousand pounds, somewhere in that range, which is amazing, actually. Um, there was, that's a very recent record that has been set. Um, we're just over 1,100 pounds, actually, I think, in uh, recent events. Um, and interestingly enough, when we start to compare the two sports between that and like with Olympic lifting, Olympic lifting has definitely, it, 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 it bears weight on an Olympic stage. Um, but I think that it's important that for recreational athletes that we pay attention to both. Um, because I think that you can definitely, you can improve your Olympic lifting. If that's something that you're interested in, you can improve Olympic lifting by performing power lifting as it's, it's an augment and strength and it definitely has an impact on helping you develop strength and the power necessary to move weight in Olympic lifts. Um, and then Olympic lifts typically come out of that as again, they are a little bit more complicated and a little bit require a little bit more coordination as we start to look at those. Uh, to uh, different, very different forms of exercise, but they do typically work in conjunction. Uh, and so uh, that's part of the reason why, again, when we start to look at kind of a hybrid model of the two of them, CrossFit is cool because I think in this week alone, I've done uh, various forms of both. I've done deadlifts, I have done power cleans, I've done uh, squat cleans, and I've done push press and jerk. Um, so I, I think that there's, if that's something that you're interested in, there's definitely a lot of room for that. And there's a very, uh, there's a very cool way to get into either of those sports and both definitely have a lot of, um, positive aspects. Again, one of the ones correlated more, more prominently correlated with powerlifting is going to be power obviously produced. And then with Olympic lifting, we're looking at more that coordination and that, um, that technical aspect of it. But to circulate a little bit back to our original topic when we started to discuss this, when we start to look at the history of these sports and of these activities, I think it's just important to understand where they came from and that there's there's a very good reason as to why these sports have lasted for over a century. And it's because of their efficiency and because of the fact that they work. Um, there is something about both of them at their core where as we start to, like I said, kind of break away the higher uh, discussion points of it and break it down, there is a point of power production and strength that comes out of both of those that is very, very impactful and very powerful and can definitely have a huge impact on our lives if we participate in these uh, event sports on a regular basis. Um, there is a lot to be gained out of these, both for longevity and also for uh, overall well-being uh, that I think definitely can have a huge impact. Um, so circling back around, uh, we're going to go ahead and we're going to focus a little bit more again on this next week. We're going to go a little bit more into the, the history of kind of cardiovascular sports and cycling and stuff like that. And then we're also going to go into uh, a little bit of bodybuilding as well and kind of see where that came from. As I mentioned before, probably going to be looking at a lot at more like Roman and Greek influences as that was where a lot of that, um, that uh, anatomy focus came from. Um, and then also looking at, I want to give some attention to strongman events as well because that is also something that maybe doesn't get as highlighted, but is definitely um, a very uh, interesting sport, and I want to kind of delve into that a little bit and kind of see where that came from as well. Uh, coming back to our original quotes from the beginning from Seneca, we had two different ones today, and we were kind of on the topic of fear. We were looking at uh, the first one that said, there are more things likely to frighten us than there are to crush us. We suffer more often in imagination than reality. Our next one is says, you are scared of dying and tell me, is the kind of life you lead really any different than being dead? 
and I want to point this out because I think that there is a there's a huge thing that we want to pay attention to here. And Seneca often in these two quotes is definitely he's promoting that there should be there should not be a sense of fear that should be instilled, or there should not be a um, a feeling of fear that should be experienced that should be avoided at all costs. But I think that fear is an excellent indicator of uh, correct activity. Now, I want to break that down a little bit, and I want to say that, for example, if you are going out to do a presentation, or if you are going out to have a conversation, or if you are going out to have a discussion, or you're going out to meet with that one person that you really don't like to meet with, or if you are going out to that job that you really don't want to do, and you actually start to feel a sense of fear from it, depending on what you're doing, depending on the activity, um, there is a yes and a no when it comes to that. So fear is something that we typically correlate with negative emotion. We typically correlate it with, again, like Seneca is mentioning here, where we have something that should be actively avoided, something that should be destroyed, something that we should not participate in. However, uh, and this is true in some states, however, when we start to look at the things that we care about, when we start to grow and start to experience fear prior to them or during them, I think that is an excellent indicator that what you are doing is good and that what you are pursuing is is correct. Because when you start to grow nervous about something and you start to become fearsome, I think that it actually shows that you are concerned and you are worried about the outcome of it and that you actually are much more dedicated to successful fulfillment of that task. Whether that is being a parent or whether that is a job interview or whether that is a presentation in front of your boss or in front of your spouse or something else like that, when you are afraid, that shows your concern for that subject and for that topic. Um, now, there are, uh, in opposition to that, there are situations where we are fearful, and as Seneca mentions, we suffer more often in imagination than reality. Um, it's important to identify certain things that where we are afraid for... Uh, without validation. We are fearful for uh, fearful of things to come or fearful of other things to um, fearful of things that have not happened yet and we start to exit outside of that barrier of control a little bit um, and that can get dangerous and we like to remain within our sphere of control as much as possible. So I think it depends. You have to just, you have to be careful with fear because fear is an excellent, like as I mentioned, indicator that you are passionate about the things that you care about and when you start to realize that, it can actually help turn that fear into energy and turn it into a, a uh, driven focus. Um, but when we start to have fear and we're not moving in any direction and we are simply being fearful, I think that's truly when we need to identify our fear. We need to disrupt it and we need to prevent it from occurring. We, again, we're creating that awareness of it in the situation that we're around. I think that um, fear in the moment of preparation is correct, but I think fear in the moment that simply persists is incorrect. So we need to do our very best to uh, take active control of our thoughts um, and start to grow awareness of the fear inside of us and start to grow awareness of that anxiousness and that uh, that uh, sense and feeling that we typically get before an event or like I mentioned before a presentation or something like that and start to recognize where that's coming from 
and if it's coming from a passion for that project, then utilize that fear as a tool to strengthen and uh, to strengthen and mobilize your focus. If it is fear that is simply rooted in the outcome or rooted in the um, in something that's outside of your control, then let it go and resume focus on the task at hand. Because again, if it's outside of your control, it is simply going to be what it is. Um, and I will leave it at that. Thank you guys very much for listening. I appreciate it. Um, again, like I said, hopefully next week we will have a little bit more on the history of uh, fitness and exercise and starting to dive into a little bit more specifics along those other lines. Um, and coming here in the next couple of months over the summer, uh, we'll hopefully have a couple more guests. I have the, um, I'm have i actually pretty good friends with the owners of the Grit Collective Company. I've actually spoken with them, and I would like to do an interview with them. So hopefully soon I'll be able to have a chat with them. We're going to kind of talk about what it takes to kind of get a uh, get a company started and I want to kind of pick their brain a little bit on kind of what their um, inspiration was for starting the Grit Collective uh, Company and Corporation. Um, and if you haven't checked it out already, they do have the new red, white, and blue American flag Grit t-shirts, One Nation Under God. Uh, you can find it at their, um, their website, gritcollective.com. Uh, I have purchased one already and I love it. It's awesome uh, and I would recommend that you do the same. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening, and again, make sure that today we move without fear.